Good morning. Blessed to have you all here today to worship together, to continue to grow together in the grace and knowledge of Christ. I'm going to ask, if you would, to open to Genesis chapter 41. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll see that you get one. Raise it high. We've been looking for a number of weeks at the life of Joseph. And today, we enter into chapter 41, where Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh. I'm going to read through verse 16, and... In the next hour, we'll look down and through verse 36. So if you would, I ask the congregation to stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 41, beginning in verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, as we've been looking at the life of Joseph over the past few weeks, there's an overarching scheme of what God is doing in the life of his servant by way of his providence. Daily happenings of life. Be they favorable or not. And through it all, on one hand, we're shown how Israel originally ended up in Egypt prior to the great exodus. 
And on the other hand, we're being shown how God was going to make good on his promise made to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, where he said, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So it's not Joseph the man who is the main focus of these chapters. Although he is the main character, it's God's covenantal faithfulness that's at center stage here. God's covenantal faithfulness. That's what's being primarily expressed through this narrative. The Joseph account, you see, is one of many parts of the grand narrative of Scripture that traces that seed first That is God's first promise of salvation all the way back in Genesis 3. A seed promised who will have his heel what? Bruised. That's Jesus. And by the bruising of his heel, great affliction, the head of the enemy shall be crushed. Teaching us that God's covenantal faithfulness does not eliminate conflict or suffering. God's covenantal faithfulness does not in any way eliminate conflict or suffering for God's covenantal people, nor does it require God to reveal himself in a supernatural, revelatory way at every turn. Now, in Genesis, we see God covenanting with his people. And he renews that covenant over a long space of time. And as he operates in unfolding this covenant in in epical time frames, we see certain spikes in divine revelation. You see a spike in divine revelation here, a spike in divine revelation there. That is where God acts in very um, significant, miraculous ways through uh, um, theophanies. That is, appearances of God. As well as revealing his name and his traits and his characteristics. You take, for instance, God's covenant with Noah and God's covenant with Abraham. God speaks to them in very clear and very particular ways, which are very abnormal ways. Would we agree with that? Very abnormal ways of God revealing himself is we jump forward to the New Testament when Jesus came and inaugurated the new covenant, God was revealing himself in the most magnificent way of all, and that is through his son. And the time of Christ included a great outburst of revelation by way of signs, miracles, and wonders, and for a short time, those signs, miracles, and wonders were carried on through the ministry of the apostles. Now, by the time we get to the epistles of the New Testament, we do not read of a church that is supposed to be filled with signs, miracles, and wonders. But we do read of a covenant community of God's people living a normative, regular life based on faithfulness, And the wisdom of God's word. Faithfulness 
and the wisdom of God in light of the covenant that he has established and fulfilled in and through his son. Now, going back to Joseph, in the era of Joseph, what do we see here? We see a very normative time. As he lives normally, as he lives faithfully, as he lives wisely in a foreign land amidst amidst a pagan people. A covenant child of God living a very normative, faithful life filled with the wisdom of God in the midst of a pagan people under the providential workings of God. This is what we witness. Where the scripture says the Lord was with Joseph. When he's locked up in that prison, it says the Lord was with Joseph. In this chapter, we don't see that phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, because it's it's being made obvious that the Lord has been with Joseph, and it's for a very particular purpose. Ultimately for God's glory. Now, with all that has occurred in this young man's life, up to this point in time, we might expect Joseph, under the dark providence of God, to reason that because he thinks it turned worse in his life, left two years here in prison, God must surely be against him. It's natural for us, I think, to assume that bad things are indicative of God's chastisement. Where we begin to ask, what have I had done to, what? Deserve this. What have I done to deserve this? You know, after all, Joseph's hope was to be restored by the testimony of the cupbearer. He rightly interpreted his dream and he said, remember me? Remember me? When you stand before Pharaoh, when you're restored, as the dream has been rightly interpreted and you shall be restored, remember me? Yet, verse 23, chapter 40, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So now, after two years, all human help has evaporated, and that is usually the case. It commonly does evaporate. Even Christian people oftentimes disappoint us. I think I've been, I was, I was, Thinking back, and and, and I'm sure, I'm certain of the fact that I have been met with more disappointment from Christians than I ever have by non-believers. That's a sad reality. People who pat you on the back, smile, only to find out they talk behind your back. And then when you're not looking, they stab you in the back. Christians. This cupbearer who Joseph ministered to, has purposefully forgotten him at this point in time. But here again, we mustn't forget, God is preparing a man for a task much larger than the man. So having been forgotten for two years, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, forgotten, This is yet just another expression of sovereign love and divine grace that proves to refine, mold, shape, and sanctify any man. Most specifically, Joseph. Because what is God doing? In the midst of all this time now, 13 years 
since his brothers threw him in a pit, he is burning away compromising impurities in this young man in order to more clearly reveal the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Teaching us that God's purposes in our lives as well are much greater than the immediate relief of pain. It was A.W. Tozer who said, It is doubtful God can use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. You see, what Joseph doesn't understand at this point in this prison is that God's purposes in dark providence over his life is about to be brought into the light. God's sovereign intention of two plus years in prison, having been forgotten by man, is about to be revealed. And, you know, had Joseph been released two years earlier, he would have most likely been lost in obscurity. Matthew Henry comments, he said, if the chief baker had commended Joseph to the Pharaoh right away, he might have gone back to Canaan and not been in position to interpret the dream and save his family. The Lord may intervene at what seems to be the midnight hour, but he always intervenes according to his timing. And I want you to notice here, verses 1 through 8, where we begin to see the subtle intrusion of sovereignty. The subtle intrusion of God's sovereignty. Verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh woke up. Who wouldn't? Okay. A normative life, the life of Joseph, living faithfully unto God who has shown him his steadfast love under a dark cloud of God's providence is suddenly disrupted by a spike in revelation. By prophetic dreams of a pagan monarch which were given by God to be interpreted by God's mouthpiece, Joseph. And he would provide proper interpretation to what God has said. So he dreams about cows. Now, cows, they weren't mere farm animals um, in Egypt, but they were actually a symbol of Egypt. A symbol. And Egyptian cows liked to graze almost submerged in the Nile to avoid the heat and the bugs, the insects. So in the dream, they've come up out of the Nile to graze in the marsh grass alongside the Nile. Now, who's the, who's the author of this? Moses. Moses would know something about this. He spent 40 years in Egypt. Now, it's also possible that in the dream, what's in view here is the lowering of the Nile, okay, which could be a factor in a great drought, even the Nile. So what you have here 
are seven fat cows, literally flat flesh, uh, uh, um, fat flesh, assumed by seven ugly thin cows, emaciated cows, literally lean flesh. Fat flesh being consumed by lean flesh. So you've got seven gaunt, disgusting-looking cows who now become cannibalistic. And it's really weird because cows are vegetarians. They don't eat meat. And it makes the dream all that more distressing. So it's not a wonder he woke up from this. This is a nightmare. A nightmare. He wakes up. And he falls back asleep. Verse 5. And he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ear swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it's a dream. Now, although seven ugly, gaunt cows eating Seven fat flesh cows was disturbing to Pharaoh. That vision actually paired in comparison to this vision. Because Egypt was legendary for their grain producing abilities. As Saudi Arabia is known today for its great oil reserves, Egypt was known then for its grain capabilities. This is no joke. Centuries after Joseph... The Roman Empire turned to to, um, Egypt as their primary breadbasket. I remind you, Sunday school students, of Paul's shipwreck, which we looked at this morning. What was he on? A grain ship from Egypt. And Imperial Rome was dependent, even in Paul's day, on Egypt for grain. So picture this east wind, and this east wind is a technical term for this desert wind, the fierce, dreaded, dust-laden, Sirocco, uh, fierce winds that, that could last as long as 50 days and destroy crops. This is disturbing to the world power of the day. And then in verse 8, in the, in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Okay, his spirit is troubled. That's an expression akin to a violent beating of the heart. Blood pressure skyrockets. He's troubled by way of a mere dream. This is God. Absolutely confounding this supposed invisible, invincible monarch. Powerful. And by the way, the pharaohs were viewed as what? Gods worshipped by the people. But God, almighty God, the one true God, the king of kings, the Proverbs tells us, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Who? The true king of the kings of the earth turns a king's heart wherever he wills. So the magicians of Egypt, they're actually all part of the pagan religion religion of Egypt. This is all part of the grand system of the day. 
they actually had um, manuals on dream interpretation. You could turn to volume three, um, you know, section six, paragraph, la da 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 da, to interpret what this means. Libraries of books on dreams. Pharaohs considered gods worshipped by their people. What they see here, what they're seeing here, is that this so-called God and what the Lord is showing to the Hebrew people through the writing of the scriptures is how ridiculous it is to worship a pagan God of Egypt. And then his magicians and his diviners aren't able to, or I would say probably refuse to, interpret his dreams. This so-called God doesn't know what will happen to the land over which he reigns, and then he has to call in magicians and diviners to help explain the dream, and they all come up empty. So this is, a, this is the Bible's way, basically, of slamming self-deification. Pagan worship. And here we see pagan gods, the gods of this age, the gods of this world are exposed as impotent, powerless. And what, what is being pointed out here is the God of Joseph, the one true God who not only ordains the future, but sometimes even reveals the future. This is what's being shown. The revelation of God, notice, doesn't seek permission of anybody. God needs no Pharaoh's permission to invade the land. God's not concerned with political correctness. God's not concerned with, with whether or not he'll offend the masses. But he forces his way in regardless of the system that's in operation. And here... This dream, it has not come by way of invitation. Do we see any invitation here by Pharaoh? Does he open himself up to God? No. It's not pre-approved by the king's handlers. But here, Almighty God, the one true God, penetrates the most secured and protected place in the kingdom, and that is the eyes and ears of the most powerful man in the kingdom. He invades Robbing him of all confidence, control, comfort, and this, all clerical advice. This is the God we serve, beloved. He needs no man's permission to do anything. Now, that which has been concealed is about ready is about ready to be fully exposed. The forgotten will now be remembered. Joseph's in prison. It isn't, it isn't it interesting that God's sovereignty does things in the minds and hearts of people that causes them to remember something that you think they've forgotten? How many times do you preach the gospel to someone? And you think they even forgot the conversation and come back a decade later, 12 14, 15, 18 years later, and say, I'll never forget when you told me, and then whatever that is, fill in the blank. This is what God does. Joseph's remembered now in verse 9. The chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, notice what he says, I remember my offenses today. 
When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream and its own interpretation. A young, a young Hebrew was there, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us an interpretation, each man according to his dream. As, and as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office. The baker was hanged. I remember my sin. I remember my offense. And now he just so happens, the cupbearer just so happens to be in close contact with the disheveled king who just so happens to remember a prisoner in a cell that he was locked up with who just happened to be there because he was falsely accused of rape, who just happened to be in Potiphar's house prior to that, who had just so happened to be sold off by his brothers in a faraway land, who just so happened to hate him because he just so happened to have dreams (laughs) that he pushed on them. So Pharaoh, verse 14, sends and calls for Joseph. Here you have a sovereign monarch, sovereign monarch calling for a Hebrew slave? Yes. But notice, not without a makeover. And they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Now this would be a a shaved face for certain, but also probably a shaved head to make him appear as an an Egyptian. So he walked like an Egyptian. An Egyptian. So here then, after years of languishing in prison, under the dark providence of God, he suddenly swept in the presence of the most powerful man in the land. Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph in verse 15, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. But I've heard, I've heard it said that what you hear and dream, you can interpret it. In other words, the word on the street is, is that you're the man. You're the man. That's what I hear. I heard you're the dream catcher. So that is a, a giant softball lobbed up. For Joseph to blast out of the park. It's his time to shine. But he doesn't. Because God has done something in this man. And here, he answered, it's not in me. God will give a favorable answer. God will provide this. The moment of truth has come. And he provides an immediate response that only 13 years of God's refining fire can possibly produce. It's not about me. It's not in me, but God. God. You remember his earliest dreams? How he expressed those dreams? Like rubbing salt into the jealous wounds of his brothers as the favored son of his father? Dreams that were given to him by God, amen? But they were conveyed with foolishness, arrogance, and self-concern. But not now. Thirteen years of adversity has burned away his pride. 
teaching him that it's not about Joseph, right? It's not about Joseph. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about God and his righteousness and his faithfulness. Realizing, as the psalmist did, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. But now I keep your word. So, he says, your majesty, absolute respect. So, your majesty, you see, it's not me. It's not about thee. But let's hear what God means by what he says. God has the answer. So, in verses 17 to 24, Pharaoh rehearses his dream. I'm not going to read it. You've already heard it. And again, these two main symbols of Egypt come up. Cows and heads of grain, grain, and they're portrayed in the dream as being ruined. Now look, these dreams really aren't that hard to figure out, right? I mean, look at Joseph's brothers had the wherewithal to figure out the interpretation of his dreams, didn't they? He never provided the interpretation. He just spoke the dream and they interpreted it. They got it. They knew what he was saying, so they threw him in a pit, stripped him of his robe. Here comes the dreamer. So these are two pictures of of the empire's food supply being destroyed, coming to an end. That's what the dream foreshadows. Now, question. Would any magician, would any diviner of the court of Pharaoh want to be the bearer of this kind of news? Would he want to bring this kind of news to the king? The very thing that Pharaoh fears? Now, perhaps they were stumped. Possibly stumped. But more likely, I think, they feared giving a less than favorable interpretation of the truth of God. Because kings were normally protected from bad news. Don't want to hear bad news. But you see, no man, No man can monitor, nor will any man monitor the invasion of God's sovereign truth. No man. You try. He conquers. So here Joseph, in the midst of this world power, stands now an authentic representative of God. Did you get that? An authentic representative of Almighty God. By way of the dark providence of God for many years, God has been grooming Joseph for leadership who will stand and not cower. He will not compromise before the mightiest monarch on earth, but he will simply declare the truth of God. He's been made into a man. He will rightly interpret God's revelation, without intimidation, without tampering with his truth, serving us, serving them in a prophetic role, but serving us in foreshadowing great prophets who would come in the name of the Lord. He's not going to allow Egyptian vanity or political pressure to hinder him from declaring the whole counsel of God. But he will speak clearly, he will speak authoritatively for God and his glory. This is what we must do. We mustn't be ashamed. The truth is the truth. 
we must declare the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Great men of God would come after Joseph, like Jeremiah. And you know Jeremiah, he was the prophet to the nations. And he would go on, and he would preach to Egypt. And this is what he would say. Jeremiah 46, a beautiful heifer. You get that? A beautiful heifer is Egypt. But a biting fly from the north has come upon her. The day of her calamity has come upon them. The time of their punishment. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel said, Behold, I'm bringing punishment upon Pharaoh and Egypt and her gods and her kings upon Pharaoh and those who trust him. Long after the exodus. Now you contrast that prophet with the so-called prophets that Ezekiel talks about, those who would cry out, peace, peace, seducing the people, saying peace, peace, when there was no peace. God have mercy. Today, preachers, and even some Christians, because of their preachers typically, cave into the religion of the land. They refuse to call sin, sin. They no, even, no longer even refer to homosexuality as homosexuality. Christians who are afraid. They no longer consider it a perversion as God does, but instead, now it's an alternative lifestyle. Preachers doing this? Are you kidding me? We proclaim the truth, we do it in love. That's not authentic representation. That's phony diplomacy. That's chameleon ambassadorship. That's what it is. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Shading God's truth strips God of the glory that is due his name. Whether it's good news or bad news. Joseph stands here serving as God's channel of truth. And get this, he's serving as God's channel of truth as an exile, as a slave brought up from a pit. You know the trappings of God's truth? The truth of Almighty God rarely come out of the mouth of the opulent, the outstanding, or the spectacular. The truth of God, the trappings of God, usually come out of the very common, the plain, or even the despised and the outcast. In 1681, in Scotland, the Duke of Ross was on his deathbed. And he's a man who lived a very, very foul and immoral life, and that life had caught up with him. And he had also been a violent persecutor of a group of true preachers known as the Covenanters. And all the while, he would lock them up, but favor the state-approved, state-appointed clergy who told him what he wanted to hear. And as he lay dying, he asked his wife's minister to be called upon because his wife was a Christian. And he said this, that his own ministers were good to live with, but not to die with. So they called in a couple banished preachers who spoke plainly to the duke about his sin and about the mercy extended to him if God willed. 
through Jesus Christ and his gospel. And in the room or nearby was the Duke of Hamilton. Seeing the two ministers ministering the truth of God's word to the Duke of Ross. And he said this, quote, we banished these men from us. And yet when dying, we call for them. End quote. Recognizing that truth often comes through one who is despised and cast off. Ultimately noticeable through one who took the form of a slave who was despised and rejected by men and stood before a governing official by the name of Pontius Pilate. And he said, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Those who bear witness of the truth also rightly proclaim the truth. No one was more despised and cast off than the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the truth. So here's Joseph. He will declare what Egypt will be saved to, and that is they will become the breadbasket to the world. But he will not tell them what they're going to be saved to without telling them what they must be saved from. And that is grotesque deprivation, ugly famine. Same as with the gospel. How can you tell people what they're saved to if you don't explain to them what they're saved from? So we see Joseph's response now. Verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what, is about, what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good years are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that come up, that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. Both dreams, he says, are announcing the same thing. Seven cows, seven stalks, represent seven years, seven years of famine, followed by seven years of plenty. And the duplication of the dream indicates its certainty and its immediacy. You notice something about these sets of dreams? Two back home, two in the prison, two before Pharaoh, indicating certainty and immediacy that it is from God. God's will will be done. So here he is speaking hard truth, the truth of Almighty God to a man who refers to himself as God, a God, Pharaoh. Nevertheless, notice this, he does so with all manner of respect. With all manner of respect. In verses 16, 25, 28, and 32, he refers to Pharaoh in the third person. Showing him the highest level of honor due to his position, regardless of his paganism. Regardless of his paganism. And all the while, he's showing absolute compassion 
by telling the absolute truth. You want to give half the truth? That's not compassion. It's not compassion. There's no way that Pharaoh can postpone or stop what God is about to do. All he can do is accept it or what? Reject it. And let me tell you this, if you're ignoring God. If you're an unbeliever here and you've been ignoring God, I hope that God has here to waken you up to reality. Anyone can ignore God, but no one will avoid God. No one. So Pharaoh is experienced here He's experiencing the irresistible sovereign will of God, as everyone does, whether they acknowledge it or not. And here's Joseph, little Joseph, now as a man, declaring this truth. And why doesn't Pharaoh have Joseph executed? Probably because he knows he's telling the truth. The very thing he fears. Painful truth that those closest to him couldn't or I gather, wouldn't tell him. Surrounded by clerics who are good to live with, but not to die with. Good to listen to when when there's abundance, but of no value when God's sovereignty shows up in the form of calamity. Because it's an altogether different message, isn't it? Now, as we move on, we don't want to miss the conjunction here of God's sovereignty with man's responsibility. Did you notice this? In verses 33 through 36, notice what he says. Now, therefore, okay, you just heard the truth. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and send him over to the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. In other words, this is what God's going to do, and this is what you need to do in response. Is that not a principle we see throughout the panoply of Scripture, beloved? This is what God says, and this is what he requires. That is to say, wisdom is never merely a mental exercise. Wisdom is never merely a mental exercise. Wisdom does. Wisdom implements. This is what we see. You know, God's truth never leads us. Okay, we know about the sovereignty of God. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We trust in the sovereignty of God. But knowing and trusting in the sovereignty of God doesn't lead us to sit back and say, I'll just watch you do it, Lord. We don't disengage. We engage according to the word of God. If God brings about, says he's going to bring about judgment, the response is to what? Repent. (laughs) We see it all throughout scripture. 
Verse 37. So this proposal, notice, pleased the Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? What do we see here? A combination of warning and wisdom. And it greatly pleases Pharaoh, a pagan who recognizes God in the man. The representative, the authentic representative of Almighty God. He recognizes it. This is the outworking of a 13-year-old dream that his brothers tried to destroy way back at home. How do you get rid of the dream? Kill the dreamer. God is sovereign. Joseph's still standing. He's been through a lot of trauma. He's been through a lot of trouble. But God's plan is much bigger than Joseph, amen? God's plan for you is much bigger than you. God's plan for me is much bigger than me. Because it's all about God and his plan, which will be carried out. Guaranteed, exclamation point. So when we hear, we should implement wisdom and do what he says to do in response to what he says to do. Simple. Because at the same time, it doesn't mean that it will come without trouble. The suffering and despair of 13 years in Joseph's life was ordained by God for the glory of God. The crooked paths of Jacob's family. This is God's covenantal family who threw him in that original pit. God's plan, the crooked paths of that family have been cloaked under the dark providence of God. The cloud of dark providence. It's just cloaked. God's plan has just been cloaked. And now you see after 13 years, he's seeing it unfold, isn't he? in a whole new way, and he stands before the most powerful man in the world, and he does it without compromise. That's the point. He's an exile. He's a slave. He's been subject to God's providential adversity. And God's fires of refinement have transformed him from a boy with a drawn-out emphasis on himself back in Canaan to a man who now with rapid concision points to God. You see that? Do you see that in your life? Have you seen that in your Christian life? God breaks you down so that you are more quick to point to Him than you are to yourself. It's refinement. Painless? Can I get a witness? Painless? No. It's not painless. But God's steadfast love has graced Him all along the way with this wisdom and what? Favor. His steadfast love is with you. His steadfast love is upon you. So what do you do when you're in the midst of trouble and trial? Pray for wisdom. Okay, Mark read from James 1. Everything we read is purposefully planned. In James 1.5, have you ever noticed the context in which that stands? It's written to an audience living in exile. Persecuted Christians away from not only their heavenly home, but their physical home. 
in the context is, is how Christians go through multicolored trials, testings, and temptations. And as you go through them, you may wonder, how am I rightly to deal with this? We're told that we're to deal with it by faith. Faith in who and what we know to be true, not tossed between what we know to be true and what the world says. Because he goes on to talk about a man who's tossed to and fro in the sea. That means to be double-minded. Okay, I'll do this according to God's truth. And then when I stand before a pagan... I'll do it the pagan way. Double-minded. He's an authentic representative. And as I close up, I want you to listen to this. Joseph has been an authentic representative of Almighty God, whose steadfast love was with him, shown him favor, wisdom, whether he was in a prison or in a palace. Whether he was low or whether he was high. He's God's man. And you know what he was? He was fully engaged within the culture God had placed him. Egypt as a covenant son of the most high God. What did Jesus pray in the high priestly prayer? Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, I'm sending them into the world as you have sent me. Not to appear as a bunch of religious nerds. Not to appear as politically correct cowards. But to stand and represent him with wisdom, skill, discernment, dignity, and honor by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And that even commands the respect of a desperately lost world. It commands the respect of Pharaoh. He starts speaking Joseph's language. It's amazing. Producing here, and this is what it's to produce in you, a culturally relevant identity meshed together with an uncompromising spiritual fidelity. That's what he's making us into. And may we never, because of pressure or intimidation, seek to divide those two things. Because as we jump to the New Testament, we read, through the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, anything less than both those things simultaneously operating together, that is a culturally relevant identity with spiritual fidelity, anything less than that is impotent Christianity. Powerless. And it strips God of the glory due his name. In other words... We do not add like a pagan when we're around pagans. We can represent God in the midst of Egypt, so to speak, without compromise. Think about this. Joseph stands in an Egyptian court in accord at this point, in accord with the grooming standards of Egypt, shaved like an Egyptian, 
He has an Egyptian job. He speaks an Egyptian language, soon to be wearing royal Egyptian clothes, bearing the symbols of Egyptian authority. He will have an Egyptian wife, and he'll be given an Egyptian name. With absolute faithfulness and authenticity to Yahweh, almighty God, who sovereignly rules, don't miss this, his covenantal kingdom and all earthly kingdoms at the same time. If you try to separate those two, you'll get all whacked out in your thinking. He's the king of all kings, and you're his kingdom people with the spirit of God to represent him, whether you're in the prison or in the palace, with spiritual fidelity. We should understand our culture. We live in it, right? We can speak their language without compromise. And as a matter of fact, the more you know how to speak their language, the easier it is to open the door to the gospel truth of the king of kings. That's what he does. Because there's one sovereign authority in this account, and there's always been one sovereign authority, and there always will be one sovereignty, one sovereign authority, whose will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven. As we live a normative, regular life based on faithfulness, based on faithfulness and the wisdom of God by way of the word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, in the midst of the highs and lows of life, through pleasure and through pain, not forgetting, as A.B. Simpson once said, that out of the pressure of pain cometh the soul's best wine. This is life. All of which is in light of the covenant that God has established and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we're all part with Joseph of the same covenantal faithfulness of God, fulfilled in Jesus, who was despised and what? Rejected by men. So, may we see first and foremost the faithfulness of God in this account, which then leads to this man Joseph, who's a recipient of the steadfast love of God and how he functioned in the midst of a pagan people without compromise to the word of God. Amen? May God bless his word to your heart. And you know, I do try. I try to come up here and say, I'm just going to try to talk calmly. And it doesn't work. And it doesn't work. May the Lord bless you. Keep yourselves in the love of God, beloved. Amen? Keep yourselves in the love of God, and may we truly resonate within as the salt and light of God, so that we may illumine as the light and the salt of Almighty God. For His glory and the good of you, His people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word, your covenantal faithfulness that shines through and through from Genesis to Revelation, for which we share as recipients along with Joseph the finished work of Jesus Christ, the promised seed, the one who came, the one who conquered, the one who was bruised, the one who died, the one who was buried, the one who was raised, the one who was ascended, the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, where all authority has been given unto him. 
And we, Lord, are called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that you have taught us, remembering that, lo, you are with us always, even till the end of the age. Bless your word to your people today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.